We're going to look at verses 13 to uh, 17 tonight. But I'll wait till um, the young and beautiful Miss Brielle Quinlan distributes the handouts. And I know that you are very studious Bible students, stu- very studious Bible students from the Department of Redundancy Department. Um, and some of you may actually know this. You may um, know this in your Bible studies. I don't know if you do or not, but I don't. You know, you know about word studies and using the Strong's Concordance and and so forth, uh, looking at the languages. But here's a really nifty tool, especially if you like uh, word jumbles and uh, Sudoku and and stuff like that. If you're good at puzzles, uh, you might have fun with this. I hope that you do. Um, and and if not, it's there. It's there. You might even see it in some places, um, and, uh, especially in the poetic literature. Job is rife with them. Bless you. But I'm opening to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And as a, uh, as you, everyone have a handout? Okay. Um, As far as for the handout, you know, chapter 1 to verse 5, or excuse me, chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, um, there's a little bit of a review there. Chapter 1, every generation like vanity or a breath in the scheme of things. And there's the, what, Havel looks like. It can be pronounced uh, uh, Hevel or Havel or Havel. Uh, chapter two, every pursuit in life is like grasping at breath ex- exhaled and all that is left is to glorify God and enjoy him. Chapter two, verses 24 to 26. Chapter three presents the whole of life with its individual parts expressing our need to trust the sovereign God. Chapter 4 presents our God-ordained need of companionship and the integral connection between the first great commandment and also the second. Uh, Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, we saw hearing from Christ and speaking to Christ must be founded upon godly fear. And uh, chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, apart from the grace of God in Christ, mankind's tendency is toward oppressive authority and vain opulence, or the love of money. And that's what we looked at last time. So today it's going to be a little bit lighter. Um, Is anyone familiar um, with the uh, term uh, chiasmus? Chiasmus. It's it's a Latin word that comes from the Greek uh, chiasma. And um, the letter key, uh, the letter key or chi in Greek, uh, you know, it look it's, it's an X, and that's where this comes from. It's a rhetorical device utilizing a reversal of grammatical structures in successive phrases or clauses, but without repetitive words, except in the cases of some Bible Bible uh, scholars, Bible colleges, and even seminaries, they actually just use the word uh, chiasmus for everything. Uh, there's another word called uh, antim- antimitable, uh, excuse me, antimitably. Antimitably is a rhetorical device which involves a reversal of grammatical structures in successive phrases or clauses 
in an ABBA configuration, but unlike uh, chiasmus, presents a repetition of words. Now, the example I'm going to give you is the second one from Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. But uh, some Bible lessons, some Bible scholars, if they're teaching language or teaching Bible study, teaching what they call hermeneutics, young people, hermeneutics is the interpretation of the Bible and how to study the Bible. Uh, Sometimes they'll just call it chiasmus or uh, chiasma. But it's, uh, um, so it's okay. What you see is a pattern. And what it is, is it's like the folding and unfolding of truth. Just like our Bible here. And John, uh, Jonah chapter 1, you'll see that it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And in this example, you can see that A and B present two things that are going on. First A, a uh, in this predicate, it's uh, or whatever they call that, but it's uh, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This is Jonah's condition. And then it uses the word down, where he went down to Joppa. Remember that you're always going up to Jerusalem and then you're always going down to everywhere else. So he went down to Joppa. And then the middle, which is called the um, the inflection or the uh, the key phrase in a verse or key phrase in the chapter or in a group of, of uh, uh, in a group of, in a group setting, like several verses may be used. It, it says going going down to Tarshish is the key or excuse me, going to Tarshish is the key there. And then again, now it, it, it from the next sentence, so he paid the fare and went down into it. So down is used again. And then finally it ends with Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Um, it establish, what it's doing is establishing kind of a rhythm there so that by this device we can see what the key thought is, what the key concept is in Jonah. Jonah was fleeing from God. He was, he didn't want to go to Nineveh as God told him. And so you could see that right away in Jonah chapter one, verse three. This rhetorical device is used throughout the Bible in many places uh, and not just in the Hebrew scriptures. It's rife in the Hebrew scriptures. It's uh, all over the Hebrew scriptures. And in fact, it's in Ecclesiastes. Uh, but it's also in, uh, John uses it quite often. John chapter 1, the prologue of John. Uh, those 18 verses in John chapter 1 present, if you take the time to look at the keys, you'll see how it unfolds. And you'll see sometimes the, those uh, reversals are opposites. Sometimes they're complementary. Sometimes they're supplementary. In other words, like it might, like we'll find in Ecclesiastes here, it might speak of one person in one of these positions, and then later on in the reversal of it, as it uh, as it's uh, expressing uh, more of proverbs or reflections or so forth, it may talk about hundreds of people. And I know that 
this is probably, you know, just a real, really quick down and dirty uh, explanation of this tool if you if you decide that you would use it but and it is a lot of fun i use it all the time to see if it's there uh, i prepare messages this way and um, uh, the reason why i brought it up is because up until this point up until in fact up until verse 8 of chapter 5 this didn't exist in Ecclesiastes per se. It's probably there. I just haven't looked hard enough. But in chapter 5, verse 8 to uh, chapter 6, the first part of chapter 6, I think chapter 6, verse 7, it exists. And what I'm going to challenge you to do is if you look at chapter 5, verse 8 to chapter 6, verse 7, see if you can unfold the, the chiasmus there. And what the theme is saying. And here's the thing. Uh, you probably won't get it wrong. And the reason why I say that is, is because in the Hebrew scriptures, I find many in the same verse, uh, in the same verses or in the same chapter. I will parse it in one way and I say, well, it's clearly there. Then I'll go to the Hebrew scriptures and I'll look it up in Hebrew and I'll say, oh, but you could parse it this way. And I parse it completely different and it provides um another layer of understanding it's just like when you do a word study sometimes the word it translated in the king james version we saw that in sunday school today uh brother wyatt uh read it in the king james version i read it in the english standard version and there were some words there that had two meanings and both of them were great they were wonderful. By using both of those word meanings, you have a fuller understanding of what the Bible is saying. Um, and, and so this is what this tool also uh, does for us. It helps us to uh, uh, take the portions of Scripture and look at them. And in fact, I think you could look it up on, online. You could find YouTubes where people explain this. Um, uh, it's used in Latin. It's used in regular literature, but it is... Uh, very much in the in the Bible, and they can explain it. Probably, I, I'm, I'm not probably. I'm sure that they can explain it a lot better than I. I'm explaining it. Uh, another place, I just uh, just one last mention before we go to the verses. One last mention of where you can find it, which is pretty neat, is in the book of Daniel. You know then that in Daniel chapter chapters 2 through 7 it's written in chaldean the uh, aramaic the the babylonian derivative of hebrew some words are similar so many words are mo most words are different but it's written that way in that one language and for so it provides one of this this chiasmus it provides uh, a pattern there in chapters 2 through 7 but then when you look at chapters 8 and 9, which are, are uh, uh, or excuse me, eight, uh, 8 through 12, it's back in Hebrew again, and it provides a different pattern, like chapters 8 and 9, you can find one there. Chapters 11 and 12, or 10, 11, and 12, you can find one there. You can even mix them, but they're there in Daniel as well. And you don't have to go to the original languages. You could do it in English, just as I have for you here in Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. Um, I just wanted, you might never, maybe you, you'll never use that tool, but I wanted to show you some 
little tricks that uh, that they teach in seminary, and most pastors don't use it because <laughs> um, they. Well, that's for the academics. So, any questions or comments? All right, have a good day. We're, um, no, we're going to look at these verses. Uh, so, verse thirteen. We left off at verse twelve uh, last time. Uh, verse thirteen says. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And verse 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. It carries on with the, um, the love of money and also the, the uh, oppression of the poor in verses 8 through 12 that we looked at last week. So it carries on, and here's the grievous evil. And the whole section, verses, verses 13 to 17, is kind of a parable. But in verses 13 and 14, first thing I want to point out, which I provided for you there, ra'ah chula. Ra'ah chula, those two words that are translated in the English Standard Version, grievous evil, or sore evil in the King James Version, I believe. Uh, sore evil, is that correct, brother? Sore evil. Um, uh, ra'ah, evil, chola, is, um, can be translated sickening evil. This root word in Hebrew, chola, or chala is the, is the root word for it. The first time it's used is in, uh, I believe it's in Genesis 48, um, that when Jacob was sick, you know, and getting ready to die. So uh, that's the word that's used for sick. It could be translated grievous. It could be translated sore um, uh, or like uh, as in very, but sickening. It's the evil was sickening um, is what it's saying there. Uh, a sickening. There is a sickening evil that I've seen under the sun. And what this reminds me of and uh, what I wanted to do to keep it uh, a kind of a quick Bible study tonight is make it very Christ-centered. What we have been discovering is it seems like a depressing book in Ecclesiastes, and it is. It's worldliness apart from God. But since we are saved by God's grace, we, we need to see it through the lens of Christ and the lens of his gospel. Because I don't want to just bring it to Jehovah God. This should not be a Bible study where you take an Old Testament book and any any Jewish rabbi can teach the same thing. <laughs> that doesn't do us any good. How do we see Christ in it so that we can apply our lives to it? Well, even this, these first two verses, as I provided you, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Many of you know that parable, don't you? I'm going to turn there and not just recite it from my memory. because I think I will get it confused because I memorized it in the King James Version years ago. Now I'm using the English Standard Version. Luke chapter 12, verses 13. It was the parable of the, what some people will call the parable of the rich fool. Again, while you're turning there, I'll read verses 13 and 14 again. There is a grievous evil, or there's a sickening wickedness that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. 
verse 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. The bad venture caused him to lose all, and so now he has no inheritance for his son, the, probably the person that he was doing all that hard work for. Uh, if, if, if you're there, I'm going to go ahead and take off on Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In verse 14, But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Verse 15. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Verse 17, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Verse 18, and here's the venture. He said, ah, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat drink and be merry verse 20 but god said to him fool this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared whose will they be verse 21 so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward god i believe that the lord jesus himself is not only pointing to that truth laying up riches for well and then let me invest it so that I can have more for this son. And then, well, it took off. Uh, he doesn't have it anymore. Well, he couldn't store everything because this night his life was required of him. As he's building, he couldn't store more of his grain. He couldn't finish it off. So even if he had someone to give it to, they're still at a loss. More than that, what this tells us in Ecclesiastes through the insight of what we have from the Lord Jesus' parable, that a life apart from Jesus, all the riches in the world, without Jesus, will bring you nothing. It will pass down nothing to your progeny, to your, to the, your children or your children's children. The only treasure that we have that is worth passing down is one that is not a venture, not a speculation. It's the certainty of the truth of Christ and him crucified, the gospel of salvation. Verses 13 to 14. Thought I'd make it a little bit more Christ-centered in this study. Does that help? Does that make sense? Ecclesiastes is going to be a little bit more fun now, I think. As a because I'm revealing to you my secrets. You, you, you won't need me anymore now that I've showed you some things, to, how to study the portion. And we won't get to it to, till we get to chapter 6, verse 7, and we'll put it all together. And then we'll see another Christ-centered, um, uh, Christ-centered perspective from the whole chiasmus kind of thing, um, which will be absolutely fun because i went ahead and kind of did some stuff and um i don't remember where i was going with that 
So let's look at verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Verse 16, this also is a grievous evil. And it is the same term right there, ra'achua. Uh, it's the same term, sickening. It's a sickening evil or a sickening wicked uh, evil. Uh, verse 16, this is also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? And I believe that word wind there uh, would be the same word as spirit, uh, not vanity as in breath, but wind as in ruach in Hebrew. Of course, there is a uh, Job chapter 1, verse 21, we all know that after, uh, after the f- many several calamities of, of Job, that, you know, the, uh, with the testing of Job and Satan appearing before the Lord and, you know, her, his, uh, all his children were, were, uh, uh, were, were killed and slaughtered by either wind falling on, uh, uh, breaking down the houses, the uh, uh, bandits took his, all his cattle, Brother Mike. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that is a very astute the the uh, the sickening evil as he healed the sick. And remember, uh, I've written more than one devotional mentioning this, that every miracle that Jesus did was a model of the gospel. You know, when he healed the sick, we are incurably sick as jeremiah 17 verse 9 says our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or incurably sick who can know it um the the opening of the ears of the deaf we can't hear god because we will not hear god uh, unless jesus opens up our hearing we can't speak the truth in love because we have a mute tongue um we are blind to the truths of the gospel until Jesus opens our eyes and so forth and so on. Uh, we're lame. We cannot walk uh, upright before God as he says to Abraham in, James, uh, in, uh, Abraham, uh, in Genesis chapter 15. We can't upright before, uh, walk upright before God, um, walk righteously before God because we're lame. Uh, we're crippled. We can't do the works of God because we're, we have withered hands etc. And every healing presents a truth of the gospel of Christ in, in his several ways. So Job, uh, you know, remember Job says, uh, uh, naked I came forth from the womb, naked I return uh, from, uh, you know, blessed, uh, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But we wouldn't stop there because uh, remember First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 7, I'm going to go ahead and turn there too. I could recite it, but some of you might want to turn there. Many of you, I'm sure, know it. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. First Timothy McElroy chapter 6, verse 7. Are you the first Timothy or the second? Yeah. You're the first Timothy. Okay, good. Okay. 
Oh, so he, so Paul wanted a Timothy. <laughs> I see what he did there. Your dad's a pastor too, right? Okay. So, um, Brother Wyatt, would you read that in the King James Version? Uh, chapter 6, verse 7. Or, yeah. Well, in fact, if you want to read verse 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7, both of them. Oh, there you go. Good. Verse 6 in the English Standard Version, almost identical. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So slightly different words at the end, but it's still the same, uh, same general thought. And if you think about this, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the great example of that those two verses in Ecclesiastes. Because when Jesus came forth, uh, b- born of a virgin to poor parents, not even a place in the inn, so he's uh, wrapped in swaddling, clo- swaddling cloths and uh, placed in a saliva-stained feeding trough in a, in a cave, a manger. And then when he died, he had, took nothing with him hanging upon the cross. Every look at the cross should tell us that if uh, the the things that we think that are most important are probably really less important. But there will be a verse coming up in Ecclesiastes that says that that your work is not for nothing. Uh, There's a reason for it. If Christ is at your center, and in fact, even this chiasmus, it's, it's... uh, a symbol for the cross itself. Key is uh, uh, the I think the ancient way of writing it is actually a you know like a plus sign, a cross. Same as the tav, the last letter of the Hebrew, um, Aleph Bait. But um, that the Jesus took nothing with him except the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's all there is. And so when he laid down his life and gave his everything. He didn't, you know, he wasn't garnering anything upon earth. So so, uh, I want to caution you with that. It doesn't mean that we should go back to fourth century monasticism. We're not going to become monks. Uh, But we'll see it through a more blessed perspective. Uh, And our priorities will become much more Christ-exalting when we see it this way. Ecclesiastes becomes will be a very depressing book unless we see it through the gospel lens of, the, of Christ and him crucified. Uh, last verse. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much in much vexation and sickness and and anger. Now, in the context of what it's talking about, someone without Christ, or even worse, someone without God, uh, a Jew without God in the days before Christ, this is extremely depressing. The man is working for this inheritance that he denies that God has given it to him because if he's not acknowledging God, the inheritance that he gets uh, through Israel is given by God. So 
That's an unhappy scene in and of itself. But he works to the point to have nothing in this parable. He's he's working. He wants to multiply those riches because he has a son. He's empty of those riches because he's speculating. And again, the gospel is not mere is not speculation whatsoever. It's assuredness because of the word of truth, the, the word of God. And that it's so bad that he uh, in eating that now working as much as he can to recover that which he's lost he's working all the way into the night and he doesn't even have enough money to buy oil to light his lamp that would be the context of this from the you know from those days of the days of the preacher uh coalette in those days however just that verse all by itself kind of sums up the last verse we're going to look at today it takes us right to the cross does it not? Again, I'm going to um, take us to Matthew chapter 27, reminding you that his, uh, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. When we consider the context of this in Ecclesiastes, the, the wretchedness of the man who's empty, who has a life of vanity, and that's also what Jesus underwent when he hung upon the cross. All the vanity, all the corruptions of life, we just look at the sins that were mounted upon him and upon his shoulder, uh, as it were, um, as the scriptures declare, that he took that and bore our iniquities as if they were his very own. And we look at that aspect of it, but even the... Uh, the futility of life and the vanity of life was fulfilled in the truth of Jesus Christ hanging upon the cross. Have you ever, if you've ever sighed because you were just discouraged and things seemed bleak, Jesus suffered that so that you won't have to be bleak. Every look upon him and what he has done is supposed to be uplifting for us. Sometimes breaking our hearts because we see the corruptions of our flesh, but when we see the truth of what he's done and it's applied to my life, that I'm joyful even in my most despairing condition. And because of that, I actually had, even though I only got an hour of sleep, I had a very fruitful afternoon because I looked at the cross and went over my notes and they they just somehow came together uh thank you holy spirit (laughs) but uh, oh anyway matthew he eats in darkness much vexation sickness uh, and sickness and anger although jesus's anger his righteous indignation prior to his going to the cross he if he was angry on the cross which i don't really see uh from scripture uh he was justified in it, but Brother Mike. Well, it was the work the Lord came to. It was the work the Lord came to do. And he was rejoicing in his work mm-hmm. and happy to do it. Um, yeah, and yes, uh, this is the the paradox, the the mystery, the conundrum, the riddle 
is that he is the man of sorrows of Isaiah 53, but he's also anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows, as in Psalm, what is that, 46? Um, he's anointed with the oil of glad or 42. I can't remember which Psalm it is. It's in the 40s. 45, 45 that's it. Uh, he's anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Um, so he is the most, Jesus was the most joyful man who ever lived, but he was the most sorrowful man who ever exist, uh, who ever walked the planet. So it was the work he did under the sun, correct? The work he did under the sun, yeah. Isn't that what it says in the end of, end of uh, Ecclesiastes? Uh, it says it throughout the, the. But at the end it says you rejoice. God has given for us to rejoice in the work of our hands, you know, under the sun. Yeah. Uh, it'll say that in in just a couple in the next chapter. It'll also say that, say something to that effect. Yeah, there it is. Behold, what I have seen to good and fitting, and eat and drink and uh, fine enjoyment and so forth. That's in the next verse. But we're not going to go there. Uh, I just want you to see that even in this very bleak book, in the most bleak day of all the universe for all eternity, this verse speaks of that bleakness in many ways it's prophetic matthew 27 verses 45 to 46 matthew 27 verse 44 5 now from the sixth hour that's high noon there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour verse 46 and about the ninth hour jesus cried out with a loud voice saying eli eli uh, lama sabachthani that is my god my god why have you forsaken me? So we see that Jesus is suffering the wrath of God. We see that it's darkness. We recognize also, number one, is that from John chapter 4, when, when uh, the, the, the Samaritan woman was uh, witnessing or sharing the truth of what she had experienced with others to bring people to jesus and his disciples he answered to his disciples i have food that you know not of recognizing that this is why he came to hang upon the cross so he's nourished by that he's eating in the darkness because it's it's dark but not to say that i'm i'm kind of twisting the scripture for this he literally had something to eat in verse 34 not 34 through 48, but 34 comma 48. In verse 34, uh, they tried to give him, um, 34, uh, it says, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. But uh, that's why he didn't want to be anesthetized. Uh, he didn't want an anesthetic because he need, he must go through and um, receive the full brunt of God's wrath when he suffered it, so that no one could say, well, yeah, you know, he was drugged, so it wasn't maybe sufficient enough to save me from my sins. He took the full force, and so in verse 48, it tells us, but others wait, um, oh, verse 48, and one of them at once ran, when when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And one of them uh, at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. In Psalm 69, verse 21, it says that gall was my food or my meat in the King James Version. But gall was my food and vinegar was my drink. 
And that was literally fulfilled on the cross. And so we have a picture even in Ecclesiastes of the Lord Jesus right there, which would make sense because that's a very bleak statement. And the bleakest, uh, the bleakest moment uh, for all the earth was when the Lord Jesus hung upon the cross. And that's all I have for you tonight. Are there any questions or comments? So, well, I know I felt feel better, brother Mike. Oh, this is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. All right. Well, let me close it in close it in prayer. I hope uh, if, if you have a mind to, I, that's why I made the the handout. If you take it with you and have this little puzzle here, the chiasmus, um, to to check that out. You can check it out in Daniel. Go on YouTube and, and, and see. They'll, they might explain it a little bit better for you and you'll see examples of it more than what I've given you here and, and that might be a fun way to study some of the scriptures. Let's pray. Our most blessed and gracious Father in God, in Jesus' name and for his sake, we thank you, Lord, for the, for the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I know that I've had trouble with it over the years in, in one way, shape, or form, but uh, I'm grateful, Father, that I get to study it with my family, um, this church family, and, and we ask you, Father, to minister unto all our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that the Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your salvation that you've given us so sweetly, and um, we ask you, we ask Heavenly Father that Christ will be exalted in our lives and that you'll... Uh, as you give us these tools in order to know you more through knowing your word more, we ask that, uh, that we'll grow in grace and be strengthened in faith for your glory in Jesus' name. And for his sake we do pray. Amen.